Dr. Ware is the professor of Christian theology, chairman of the theology department where I went to seminary at Southern Seminary, and he's got a wife, Jody, who's wasn't able to make it today, and, a, and two grown daughters. And let me just say, you'll see when he, after he gets done, we're really privileged to have him speak to us. I didn't realize how long back it was that I asked him to come. I asked him back in April, and this is the soonest he could come. So he speaks all over the world, and he's in high demand, so we're really glad to have him here. I had him for an advanced theology class, and the one thing that impressed me was Dr. Ware is brilliant. He's very smart, but he would take things that could be very complex and make them very simple in class. I really appreciated that, and he is very passionate and energetic about what he believes, what the Bible teaches, and it would get me excited coming into class. I look forward to class. It was probably one of the, if not the best class that I had at the time. One thing is, he's the only professor, never thought this would happen, we had to have our final exam was an oral exam, which meant he gave us nine topics on the Trinity, attributes of God, Holy Spirit, atonement, doctrine of Christ, end time events. We didn't know which one of those he was going to pick. But he's going to pick one of them, and me and someone else, he picked, we teamed up as students. We had to meet him at his office at a set time, and he's going to ask you, okay, explain to me about and we had to know what we were talking about. It wasn't you were going to be able to look and take notes in time to think you better have the answer, right? And then the other person had to answer their question, and you had to critique each other. So you also had to know what they said wrong next to you. And he asked me before we started today, was that a good experience? I said it was afterwards. <laughs> because I think that was the most nervous I ever was for any exam I took. So at one point, well, back in April, I'm thinking I'd like to teach on the Trinity, it's, it's an essential doctrine that we've never really been taught in detail about, and I thought I could do it. I've done it. I've taught about it in prison. But I thought, I've heard Dr. Ware teach on it. He does a great job. He brings a passion to what he's saying, and I just thought it would be a great thing to have him if he could come talk to us. So, you know, you think, well, what's the big deal? I'm not much into theology. But listen, theology affects our ethics and our lives more than you realize and he will bring that out he'll bring out the practical applications of the trinity and i'll let him do that so i'll get off this stage and let him come on up if he would thank you yeah thank you thank you sir well it's a delight to be with you this morning and uh, just really love the spirit that i sense here in your church it's a great thing you know, I, I grew up in uh, Spokane, Washington, a long ways from here, uh, northwest United States, but my dad was from Georgia. So in many ways, I grew up in a southern home. Uh, he had been uh, discharged from the Air Force at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, but he grew up in Fort Valley, Georgia, near, near Macon. And uh, so I, I grew up in re really what, what was a southern home. You know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, respect for, you know, I, I never left the table, uh, I, well, maybe, maybe in my very earliest years, but I never recall ever leaving the table without saying thank you to my mother for the food that she had fixed. I would have gotten in such big trouble uh, with my dad. I mean, he just, uh, there, there, there's no, nothing that made him more angry than disrespect to his wife, my mother. And I have... Uh, appreciated that so much and want, want to pass that on to others as well, y young fathers, uh, to help their children learn to respect their mother. I mean, goodness, you're gone a lot of the time. She's with those kids, 
And if they don't respect her, if they're sassing and all of that, it's miserable, just plain miserable. So you, dad, are the one who's responsible to set the tone in that home so those children are obedient and respectful to their mother. Well, I learned that from my dad, and I'm so grateful. So, you know, in, in so many ways, Victory in Jesus was his uh, favorite song. We, we had it sung uh, at, at his funeral. And uh, so anyway, just being with you this morning, it felt kind of like uh, my, my uh, upbringing in many ways. And so it's a joy to be with you. And uh, John is right. I love the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm just really thrilled to be able to share this with you this morning. And on, we have two Wednesday nights also. The next two Wednesday nights in a row, I'll be going into more depth. And this, this, so this morning is kind of a summary, as it were, of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, from one passage of Scripture that we'll look at together. Uh, but then we'll unpack it more on the Wednesday nights that we have uh, upcoming. So let me just pause for a word of prayer as we dive into this this morning. Father, we do pray that your spirit would be at work to uh, help us understand your word, the word that he inspired, uh, the word that speaks the truth of who you are, your self-revelation to us. And may we see in your word uh, clear indications of who you have shown yourself to be as Father, Son, and Spirit. And may our hearts be moved as we learn more about you to, to honor you, to love you, to adore you, and long to live in ways that are more faithful to you. So do this good work, we pray, in the name of our glorious, exalted Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1 if you haven't done so yet, and there is an outline that you'll want to use to follow along this morning. Uh, let me ask you a question as, you, as you're getting to that place in your Bible. Uh, have you learned to read your Bibles with Trinitarian lenses on? I bet no one's ever asked you that question before, huh? Have you learned to read your Bible with Trinitarian lenses on? Now, what I mean by that is, are you looking for what I call the Trinitarian indicators that are in the Bible? I mean, we'll see this morning, we'll come to this in just a bit, that many of the divine pronouns, for example, the he's, the his's, the, the hymns, uh, that's not H-Y-M-N, that's H-I-M, right? The hymns in the Bible uh, are not, uh, the, the divine ones, the divine pronouns are not about God generically, the one God. A few of them are, but not many. Most of them are of one or another Trinitarian person. And if you don't see that, you read the Bible like I used to. I used to read it without ever seeing the Trinity that's there. But in fact, when you read and you realize, oh, that him is the Father, that his relates to the work of the Son, that, that you know, th this is the Spirit. So you, you begin to see this richness, this texture that's there in the Bible that helps us understand who God is as the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit that we may have missed before. So I invite you this morning, if you've never put on a pair of Trinitarian lenses before, put them on, right? And look at the Bible in a way that unpacks what's there. I mean, we're not making any of this up. It's right there, but we just haven't seen it. At least this is my testimony until the Lord opened my eyes to see this. I, I just passed over it in my, in my reading of the Bible. So this morning, we're going to look at that together. And, uh, and basically, the sermon, the structure, it's very simple. I'm going to read through Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 in just a moment. And then we're going to work through it together. Uh, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, 
just noticing what I call the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity that are implied. It's not that they're stated explicitly, but they're implied in the ways in which Paul thinks of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And we'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 to 14, we'll take a look at the roles of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that, that relate in this text principally to our salvation. So contours of the Trinity, kind of the structure for understanding the doctrine of the Trinity correctly, and then moving on to the specific roles of Father, Son, and Spirit in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. All right, well, let's read the passage first. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation, Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Well, let's begin this morning with verses 1 and 2 and take a look at uh, what we might think of as contours of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity, you might think of as a giant block doctrine. I, I think of it this way often, this massive, weighty, glorious doctrine. It really is, you know, who God is. Uh, besides his attributes, besides the characteristics of his nature, he is the one God who is three. And this massive, glorious doctrine of the Trinity is upheld by two pillars. You might think of it this way, two themes that have to be in place in order for that doctrine to be upheld. And we see both of these pillars, these themes, implied in Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Notice how Paul begins, Ephesians 1, 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now stop right there. Think with me. Notice he's an apostle of Christ, right? But not by the will of Christ. He's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Now I take it this is shorthand for God the Father. Uh, about 90% of the usages of God in the New Testament, theos is the Greek word, God as we translate it in English, about 90% of the usages of that term in the New Testament refer not to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit together, but rather refer to the Father as God. So it's really shorthand for God the Father. Think, for example, the last verse of, uh, of the book of 2 Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, be with you. Well, it, clearly he's talking in Trinitarian terms there. May God be with you. May God bless you as he ends that letter. But it's may the, the grace of Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit, but he just says God. So God is shorthand for God the Father in so many, many places in the New Testament. And I believe that is the case here. I mean, look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So back to verse 1, I'm pretty confident that when he says that he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God, he has in mind God the Father. Okay, so now think with me. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Father and the Son are distinct from each other, right? There is a distinction. And this is the first pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity, is there must be a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That these are not three names for the same person. Now, I have at least three names. I have a feeling my students have some others. I don't know that they may want to use of me. But uh, I have at least three names. I'm Bruce, I'm Mr. Ware, and I'm Jody's husband. So those three names apply to me. But here's the thing. Anything you see about Bruce, you would also see about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd also say about Jody's husband. Well, what would you conclude then? Well, Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? But uh, this is exactly not the case with the names Father, Son, and Spirit. That the Father, there has to be something you say about the Father you do not and cannot rightly say about the Son. Something you say about the Son that you do not and cannot rightly say about the Spirit. Because these are distinct persons. Distinct in who they how, how they express the divine nature. And so Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct from each other. So indeed, when he says he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God... He's indicating in there a distinction between the two of them. The Father willed that he be an apostle of Christ. Now, there's, some, there's something else indicated in this that we'll see more later on, and that is there is an ultimacy with the Father within the Trinity. Notice it's the will of the Father. The Father is the one <clears throat> who has designed and willed and purposed uh, all that takes place in all of creation and all of redemption. We'll see more of this in a bit. But here in verse 1 is just a tiny little sample of that theme that we see uh, connected with the Father, the grand designer, the architect. So it is the Father's will that, the, that, that Paul 
um, as it were, minister the gospel of Christ, advance the purposes of Christ, uh, prom- promote the, 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 the ongoing mission of Christ. This was the Father's will that he do this. And by the way, doesn't that indicate just in j- just this little glimpse we have in verse 1, a humility that is in the Father, that the Father is, is, d- doesn't, uh, as it were, will for Paul to be all about the Father, you know, go out there and represent me first and foremost. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's go out and represent my son first and foremost. I want my son to be put forward. I want my son to, 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 to be honored. I want my, my son's work and, and his gospel to be, to be known by others. So, indeed, I want you, the Apostle Paul, I want you to be a sent one, an apostle that, that represents Christ my son. That's what the Father wills in that. Isn't that amazing? We'll see more of this as we move through. But it's, it's just hinted at there in verse 1, but it's there. It's very clear. The Father's will is not to put himself forward first and foremost. It is instead to put his son forward first and foremost. I mean, you think of the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know, follow him, listen to him, obey him. Uh, the, the father is, uh, is so desirous that his son be put in this place of center stage where the spotlight is not on him, him as father, but on the son. And yet the father designed it that way. Isn't that amazing? So indeed, we, we begin then with this first pillar of the Trinity, which is the pillar of distinction. Distinction. Father, Son, Spirit, distinct from each other. Now, by the way, if you don't have that, if there is no distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, if rather Father, Son, and Spirit are like Bruce, Mr. Ware, and Jody's husband, right? Three names for the same person, then what we call the doctrine of the Trinity collapses into... Unitarianism, right? One God who is one person. That's the Unitarian vision of God, which you have in Judaism, which you have in Islam. But we Christians are not Unitarian monotheists. We are monotheists. We believe there is one God. But we are Trinitarian monotheists. One God who is three distinct persons. Father is Father, not Son. Son is Son, not Spirit. So indeed, three distinct persons in order to uphold the, the reality, the truth of the, the three Trinitarian persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, now moving on into verse 2, this is very interesting. Now we read in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Greek word for and is the word chi. So when I teach this in class, I sometimes say, have you ever noticed the power of chi in the Bible? The power of the word and. Look at that word and in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that indicate as Paul thinks of the Father and the Son uh, in the expression that he gives in verse 2? Well, it indicates two things. One is, they're still distinct, right? So it's not grace and peace to you from God our Father, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Like, like I'd like you to meet, uh, I'd like you to meet uh, uh, Mr. Ware, Jody's husband. You know, two, two, two names for the same person. He's not doing that in verse 2, right? So grace and peace to you from, on the one hand, from God, and on the other hand, from the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So distinction is still upheld, but the word and does something else. What does it do? Who alone can give grace and peace? Only God can do that. I mean, every parent, know, every Christian parent knows that of his or her own children. We, we know we cannot give to our children grace and peace. This, these are the gifts of God. Only God can do that. I mean, we pray for God's grace to be granted to our children, that they, their eyes are open to behold the, the truth and, and, and that, that they would have hearts that are at peace before God because their sins are forgiven and all of that. It's, it's glorious, isn't it? Grace and peace, glorious gifts of God. Get the point. Right? So grace to you and peace from God our Father. Yeah, He's God, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ. What? He's equal to God the Father? He can give grace and peace that only God can give? Yes, indeed, because He is equal in His very nature to God the Father. He is equally God. So, so here we have the other theme, the other pillar of Trinitarian, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, is that because there is one God, there is one nature of God. There is a unity, an equality, even an identity. Now, you'll have to hear me out on this. An identity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in nature. Now, in person, they're not identical. The Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. But in nature, both the Father and the Son and the Spirit possess the identically same nature. Hence, there is one God. So, again, the Trinity is not, Father, Son, and Spirit is not like Peter, James, and John. Or if you grew up when I did, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Take your pick. You know, whichever triad you like, you know. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Peter, James, and John. They're not like that because Peter, James, and John, Peter, Paul, and Mary, those are three persons, yes, each possessing his or her own nature, right? So something happens to Peter, Paul and Mary are fine. Well, they miss him. But still, I mean, they live on, right? Their natures are distinct, uh, uh, but but uh, in God, this is not the case, that the nature of the Father is the nature of the Son. The nature of the Son is the nature of the Spirit. And by the way, it, it is not the case that each is equally God because each possesses one-third of the divine nature. So they're, they're co-equal. They're equally God because the Father is one-third God. The Son is one-third God. The Holy Spirit is one-third God. Oh, no. The Father is 100% God. The Son is 100% God. The Spirit is 100% God. And yet these are not three gods, but three personal expressions of one undivided divine nature, fully possessed, eternally possessed by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit. So indeed, one God who is three. Distinction of persons, equality in nature. 
as they possess the strongest kind of equality that there is, an equality of identity. Identity. Now, let me, let me just expand on that just a tiny bit more so you get the significance of that idea. Equality, equality of identity. You and I have an equality uh, that, is, uh, that is lesser than an equality of identity. You and I have an equality that you might say is an equality of same nature, right? Same kind. You have a human nature. I have a human nature. So we're equal. We're both human, so we're equal. But your nature is distinct from mine. Mine is distinct from yours. Uh, if I'm in a car accident on the way home and you're not, uh, something happens to me, but not you. Aren't you glad I used the analogy that way instead of the reverse? Yeah, okay, anyway, so uh, <coughs> we, we are distinct in natures, even though we have the same kind of nature. Or here's another way in which things might be equal. You might think of it as an equality of proportionality. Take a pie and divide it into three equal pieces. Each is one-third of the pie. So they're equal in proportion, Right? Each is a third, so they're equal in, in their proportion of the pie. Well, that, that's, a, that's a kind of equality, but what you see in God is even stronger than that. I mean, there's a sense in which you can say Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in same kind because each of them has a divine nature, right? And they're equal in proportion. Each of them has the same proportion of deity, 100%, right? You could, you could say that. But the most important way in which Father, Son, and Spirit are equal is that each of them possesses not merely the same kind of nature, not merely the same proportion of that divine nature, but they possess, each of them, the identically same divine nature, right? So the nature of the Father is the nature of the Son. The nature of the Son is the nature of the Spirit. Hence, one God. And that one God is fully manifest in the Father. That one God is fully manifest in the Son. That one God is fully manifest in the Spirit. And yet, Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct expressions, personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. By the way, you might be wondering, what is nature? What's the nature of God? And I think the easiest way to think of that is the nature of God is the collection, as it were, of all of the essential attributes of God. God's holiness, justice, righteousness, His knowledge, His wisdom, His power. I mean, you, just, you think of all of these attributes that are essential for God to be God. Those comprise the nature of God, that one nature fully possessed by the Father, that identically same nature fully possessed by the Son, that identically same nature fully possessed by the Spirit. So one God who is expressed through three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You have to have, for the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to have distinction and you have to have equality and an equality of identity in order to understand this. Now, a number of years ago, when I was teaching my own two girls, now grown and gone, uh, not, well, one is gone. Uh, her husband teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, last week, I was at a church in Leavenworth, Kansas, so we were a actually able to stay with them over the weekend, which was wonderful. Uh, we have three grandchildren, so, so any of you who have grandchildren know what a good thing that is uh, to go and visit them. And uh, in any case, when they were little, though, uh, Bethany and Rachel, our two girls, um, 
many years ago, I decided to begin using the time that I, that, that, uh, I had with them at night as I was putting them to bed uh, to use that time to teach them theology. I mean, why not? You know, they, they don't want to go to sleep. They're, they're gig, you know, fun little giggly little girls and, and having a great time. And so I thought, well, goodness, if they don't, don't want to go to sleep, why not just, you know, uh, sit with them or, or kneel next to them at their bed and go through systematic theology with them, which I did. So uh, we, it took about 10 years to go through from Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, to eschatology at the very end of this, just bit by bit by bit, little by little. Uh, and these were just wonderful times with my two girls. I just can't, you know, honestly, I'd go back and do it in a heartbeat. It was so fun. Uh, to, to do that. I, I would always start with a verse to help them understand that this doctrine in the Bible is actually from the Bible. It isn't dropped from heaven and above, you know, without, without biblical support. But uh, in any case, so all that to say, there was a time when we were going through the doctrine of the Trinity. I was doing this with, with, uh, with the girls. Uh, they were pretty young. I think Bethany was maybe, she might have been by that time, maybe 10 years old. Rachel was about six years old. And uh, we were doing this together. And I wanted so badly to have an illustration of the doctrine of the Trinity to help them get it, you know, because this is complicated. And, and, uh, but every illustration that I knew of, uh, I didn't use because I knew it was, one, it was a good illustration of one heresy or another, uh, but not a good illustration of the Trinity. So I didn't want to use those. Now, we could talk about that later if you want to, why, why H2O is not a good model of the Trinity. Anyway, we, we can do that later. Um, so I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't know if there is something, uh, some kind of illustration or analogy that would be helpful. But if there is, I don't see it. Could you help me know it? And uh, a couple nights later, I woke up at 3 a.m. Uh, with this thought in my mind. I got up and wrote it down, and I've used it ever since. Uh, and it's in a, a book that I wrote later uh, to help parents teach theology to their children, kind of do what I did uh, w- with my own kids uh, to give that to other, other dads and other parents to do that, a, a book entitled Big Truths for Young Hearts. <clears throat> but in that book, I use the illustration. Here it is. Imagine a whiteboard. There is one here, but I'm going to do it just vi- visually because I'm not a very good artist, right? So imagine a whiteboard, and you have three markers. The first marker is a blue marker. And you draw on that whiteboard a big blue circle. So there's one circle on the board that is encompassed by one line. A blue line encompasses that circle. Okay. Then you take a a red marker and you overlap exactly the blue. And you draw a red circle on the board overlapping the blue one exactly. So you have on the board one circle. But that one circle is encompassed by two lines, the blue line and the red line. So that the blue circle is the red circle. The red circle is the blue circle. But the blue line is not the red line. The red line is not the blue line. So now you take one more, say a green marker, and overlap exactly the blue and the red. And now you have on the board one circle, and that one circle is is comprised of three lines. Uh, there's, there's the green line and the red line and the blue line, and each of those uh, uh, lines encompass the identically same circle. 
So the green circle is the red circle, is the blue circle, but the green line is a distinct expression of that circle. The blue line provides a distinct expression of that circle. The red line, a distinct expression of that circle. So something like that is the way to understand the Trinity with one nature of God, fully possessed by Father, fully possessed by Son, fully possessed by the Spirit. And yet Father, Son, and Spirit each is his own distinct personal expression of that nature as the Father, Son, and Spirit then act and work in ways that reflect who each of them is as Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, so here we have the contours of the Trinity. Distinction, and equality, and equality of identity, both of which have to be understood to, to get the doctrine of the Trinity correctly. Now, one more thing I want us to see before we move on uh, to verse 3 is, think of John 1.1, 1, 1, the opening verse of the Gospel of John, and you'll see in John 1.1 1, 1 that John is thinking distinction and equality, right? So think of the verse with me. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Which theme? Distinction, right? One is with the other. The two of them are together, right? Distinction. And the Word was God. Equality. They comprise the one God. So indeed, both of these have to be in place in order rightly to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, with that in mind, let's take a look now at uh, the rest of the, the, the section together, verses 3 to 14, at the, the works of, the, the expression of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And of course, the topic here in Ephesians 1 is principally about our salvation. What has God done to bring about our salvation? And it begins with God the Father. My summary statement that I have on your outline is the grand architect of salvation is the Father. He's the designer, the, the, the one who put it in place, uh, who, who, who in his wisdom uh, designed everything that would take place in our salvation, all ultimately is the result of the Father's will and design. So we, we read in verse 3, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now let's just think about verse 3 for a moment together. I mean, it strikes me that Paul could have written this same verse in a way that would have been true, that would have highlighted the one God in our salvation without distinguishing the Trinitarian persons. He could have said this. He could have said, Blessed be God who has brought to us every blessing we will ever receive. And that would be true, right? No, if, if, that, if that's what he had written, none of us would look at that and say, oh, wait a minute now, there's something wrong about this. No, blessed be God for all the blessings God has brought to us. Indeed, true. True enough, but not precise enough, right? For the Apostle Paul, because he's thinking Trinity. He's thinking Father, Son, Spirit. So indeed, if you ask him the question, where do these blessings originate? It's pretty clear what his answer is. In the Father. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ah, so you see, every blessing that we receive, my friends, just soak this in. 
It's incredible what Paul is saying here. Every blessing we receive in this life and in the life to come. And by the way, the blessings we receive in this life compared to what we will receive in the life to come, I think by analogy it might be something of the, along the lines of a grain of sand on the seashore. That's the blessings in this life. I mean, honestly, we have no idea what it will mean to be forever, ever, ever, ever with the Lord and the never-ending unfolding of the display of his blessings upon his people. We have no, we, we would be so embarrassed if we knew clearly how much God has designed for us to have. An embarrassment of riches is ours. So here, here's the point. All of them designed by the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So all of them designed by the Father, but accomplished through the work of the Son. So none of them can be brought to us apart from what Christ does. His work on the cross, his, the accomplishment of his life and his death and resurrection, his, his ascension, all of this is part of what had to take place in order for these blessings to come to us. So designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son. And of course, we'll move on to that as a separate point in just a moment. But I think the Spirit is also in verse 3. Notice he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what are these spiritual blessings? And here my thought is this. What, one way that some commentators have taken this, but that I think is, is, is misguided, is to say that Paul is distinguishing here just those blessings that are spiritual in nature as opposed to physical and material. So dividing, dividing between spiritual things and material things. And of course, that is a legitimate division. That's true. But I doubt, I'm very doubtful that's the division that Paul has in mind here because it really is far more Platonic than it is biblical. Plato, of course, put a big emphasis on what is spiritual. If any, any of you remember his, the, his doctrine of the forms, you know, these spiritual entities, justice, beauty, truth, goodness, so, so on, that exist in this physical world is, is a feeble representation of that greater reality that is spiritual. So it's very much Plato, but it's not Bible, right? The Bible doesn't make this bifurcation between spiritual that is good and physical that is not. I mean, th think of the Lord's Prayer. What's the very first request in the Lord's Prayer after we give the Father praise? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Pretty physical, right? Pretty material. So indeed, I don't think this is the distinction he's making. You know, the physical stuff, oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it does. We all know it does. But, you know, the, the, it's just the spiritual stuff. No. So here's what I think it is. It's not that he's saying these are spiritual as opposed to material, but rather that these come to us existentially, personally, subjectively, 
through the work of the Spirit. So spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that the Spirit sent from heaven to bring these blessings to us, I think is what he's talking about. So I, I think verse 3 is, full, is a fully Trinitarian verse. So every blessing we receive in this life and the life to come, designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son, and the Spirit sent from heaven to bring to us those blessings in our lives. Apart from His work, we would not experience it. Apart from His work of grace in us, we would not have open eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and come. We would not be regenerated. We, we would not be changed into Christ's likeness. The Spirit is the one who does this work in us. So indeed, from the Father, through the Son, and then fulfilled ultimately in the Spirit. This, this is the salvation we have had. Okay, now let, let's stick with the Father a bit more. Verse 3, of course, emphasizes the role of this Father. But notice the verses that follow right after it. Remember I mentioned to you, notice pronouns? Here's a good case in point. You move on now to verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Stop. Think. Who's the he who chose us and who's the in him in which we are chosen? It's pretty clear now, right? So the, the he who chose us is not God generically, but the Father specifically. The Father is the one. In fact, this is the first, really, the verses that follow is an unpacking of what these blessings are that God the Father has designed for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What are those? Well, He chose us, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Let me just, just say a couple things about this. It saddens my heart greatly that the doctrine of election has become for so many Christian people a divisive, problematic, troubling doctrine. Look at the Apostle Paul. When he thinks the blessings that God the Father has designed for us, what's the first one that comes to his mind and off his pen? He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we will be holy and blameless before him. What's the second one? He predestined us. It doesn't get much better, right? I mean, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Number one and number two on the list are election and predestination. Now, here, here's what I submit to you. If that's the way Paul thinks about those doctrines, glorious, wonderful, to, to, to give praise to God for, and we think they're troubling, one of us is not thinking about them correctly. Who might that be? Can you hear that from me this morning? I mean, honestly, this is just glory. I mean, why would Paul start with the doctrine of election? He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world because he knows that it had, it, had it not been for the decision of God before he created the world that we be his in the end, none of the rest would happen. There would be no son who comes as Savior. There would be no offer of the gospel. There would be no work of the Spirit to bring us to faith in Christ if God the Father had not chosen us to be his before he created the world. So that in the end, we would be like Him, 
holy and blameless so we could be in his presence forever. Amen. Amen. And by the way, in Ephesians 5, you, you hear this same phrase, holy and blameless, again. You know where you find it? The son, husbands, love your wives. This is Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, dot, 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 that she would be holy and blameless. So it sends chills down my spine. I, it's just incredible, is it not? What the Father has designed us to be is accomplished in the work of the Son for His bride. Isn't it beautiful? So indeed, this is the Father's design, that we be this in the end, that we be, not, not maybe hope so. Not, you know, goodness, if you guys cooperate with this, it's going to happen. But, you know, if you don't cooperate, I don't know. All bets are off then. Are you kidding this is God. This is the Father who chooses that we be holy and blameless. And the Son does the work. It's a done deal for all of those whom the Father has chosen before he created the world. It's amazing, is it not? And then he predestined us to adoption. I mean, notice, by the way, in love. He predestined us. So many people think the doctrine of the love of God and the doctrine of election are at odds with each other. But oh no, how is his love manifest most fully? By choosing us to be his. And here in this text, verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, it doesn't get more intimate than that, does it? To be brought into his family, to, to be made co-heirs with Christ. More in this coming a bit in this passage. So again, this is the work of the Father who has put in place everything necessary for our salvation. He is the architect, the wise designer of everything that takes place. Let me show you just one more verse where you see this. Uh, the end of verse 8 and verse 9 Paul writes this, in all wisdom and insight, notice pronouns now, right? Are, 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 you, are you putting on your Trinitarian glasses? All right, take a look at the pronouns. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Ah, that last phrase helps, doesn't it? In him has to be in Christ. All of this happens in Christ. So who's, who are the previous he's and him's and his's? The Father. The Father made known to us the mystery of the Father's will according to the Father's kind intention, which the Father purposed in his Son with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times that all things might be summed up in Christ. So he had not only a purpose for us in our salvation, he had a purpose for his Son, that his Son would be put in the highest place over all, but through, I mean, we skipped over what we're coming to next, but through accepting the lowest place possible first. Going to the cross, the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So by accepting the lowest place possible, servant of all, dying for the sins of the world, he then is exalted to the highest place of all, which fulfills what the Father designed from the beginning, that his son be put in this place as triumphant king over all of the universe. So father, designer, architect, wise uh, uh, a planner of what takes place in all of salvation uh, in, for, for all of our lives. Moving on to the Son. If the Father is the grand architect of salvation, it is through the Son that the glorious accomplishment of salvation comes. The Father architect, the Son accomplisher, right? So here you have the Son who always does the will of His Father. I mean, it's just quite amazing, isn't it? And we'll see this more on Wednesday nights as I unpack this. I'm going to go through this with you for many, many other scriptures and help you see how it is always the, the heart of the Son to do the will of His Father. So, yeah, I mean, a statement like you read in John 4, 34. You know, they, they, he was hungry. They brought him food to eat. They handed it to him, and he said, I have food to eat that you don't know of. Well, I don't see a McDonald's anywhere nearby. You know, where, where is that food? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Isn't that beautiful? My food, my sustenance, my nourishment, what, what, what sustains me, what, what delights me day by day, moment by moment, is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish His work. This is always the Son. Never any exception to this, right? So here we see it again. The Son is the one who accomplishes what the Father has designed. We saw that in verse 3. All these blessings of the Father are in Christ. They happen in Him. But when we come to verse 7, we see it spelled out a bit more specifically in regard to the work of the Son. Verse 7, we read this. In him, that is in Christ. Now the him there is Christ. You know that because of the end of verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, that's the Father's grace, which he, the Father, freely bestowed on us in his beloved Son. The beloved there refers to Christ. So the end of verse 6 refers to Christ as the beloved one. So then the beginning of verse 7, in him is in Christ. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Who's the he there, by the way? That's the Father, which he lavished upon us in his Son. Okay, so here, here's the work of Christ. Now, of course, the work of Christ in, in the Bible is far greater, far more can be said of it than is said just in this one verse. But what Paul is focusing on here is really what you might think of as sort of the heart of the atoning work of Christ, that he redeemed us in order to bring about our forgiveness. Now, it's more than that, but it is this. This is really at the core of what the atoning death of Christ is about. Redemption. Let's just think about that for a moment. In Him we have redemption. The term redemption in the New Testament is a term that, that uh, is a very common term used in Greek literature. It means to purchase. You know, after, after church is over today, if you go to Walmart, go to Target, you, you buy something, uh, you're redeeming it, right? I mean, in biblical language, redemption is to purchase. Uh, the, the term agorazo 
comes from the, the, the noun agora, which is the marketplace, the agora. And what do you, what do, you do at the agora, the marketplace? You, you agorazo, you purchase. So it's, you know, we haven't come up with this term. I'm surprised my wife has it because she, she loves Target, you know. You go to Target, what do you do at Target? You, you go targeting, you know. I, I, I can imagine that word someday, you know, being, being formulated. You go targeting. You go shopping at Target. Well, this, that's what agorazo is. It's you, you purchase at the marketplace, the agora. So, indeed, the, he purchased us uh, with his blood. You know, apart from the, uh, apart from the shedding of blood, we, we know in Hebrews 9, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? But here's an interesting thing. You think, well, wait a minute. There has been shedding of blood for many, many years, centuries. There has been shedding of blood for, it seems anyway, for forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system requires blood shed. It started at the Exodus, didn't it? That's the first place we see this where uh, God had said he's going to send uh, a destroyer, the angel of death, who is going to come and take the firstborn of all of those whose houses did not have, on the lintel and the doorposts of their house, did not have the shed blood of a lamb that was placed there. When, when that blood was there, he would pass over those homes, Right? Passover. So the Passover celebration in Judaism is a celebration of this event when God passed over their homes because blood was there and went to the homes of the Egyptians where there is no blood and hence they die instead of the animal dying. You see it? So this very notion of shed blood for forgiveness of sin uh, is established in the Old Testament by God. And then, then it's, it's in, in, uh, ensconced in the law that God gave to Moses. Okay, so you say, well, goodness, if, uh, if there already has been shed blood for forgiveness of sin, what's new about this? Ah, what's new about this is Hebrews 10, verse 4. The shedding, by the shedding of blood, there is the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So guess what, friends? Through all of Old Testament history, all of the blood that was shed, all of those animals sacrificed for the sins of the people when they were obedient to the Lord, when they were carrying out the law, of course, many times they didn't, but when they did do that, they were offering these animals in their place for the forgiveness of their sins, and these animals would take the consequence of death that they deserved as those animals died. But guess what? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So, actually, no payment had been offered at all. And yet God had been forgiving them. So, what's the deal? And here's what it is. That in the Old Testament then, God designed those, that sacrificial system not to be in itself atoning. Not to be in itself uh, able, able to remove sin, to forgive sin. But he established it as a pointer to a future sacrifice. It's called typology. I don't know if you know that term. That, that, you know, when you read the Old Testament, there are, there are literal prophecy and fulfillment passages where, I, right, where a prediction is made 
in Bethlehem of Euphratha. That's where the Messiah will be born. That's fulfilled when, when Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. So there are passages in the Old Testament that are <coughs> literally prediction and fulfillment, but there are many, many that are of this kind, that are typology, that they represent something in smaller scale that then is re... Oh, what's the word I need here? Uh, um, oh, there's a good word. It's just not coming. Uh, smaller scale that is, is restated, re, reissued, re... Help me. Uh, another, another word here. Reintroduced. Re, re, yeah, reformulated. Pardon me? No, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll stick with that. You get the idea. The, the re. You got the re, right? Uh, uh, re, restated in a greater way than it was... So this was... Pointing, this is a picture pointing to the greater that is coming. So here's what was taking place in the Old Testament. All of those sacrifices that were made, none of them forgave any sin at all. Not at all. It's not that when Jesus came, he took care of the, 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 the remaining 70%. No, 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 no. Zero had been taken care of when he came. Zero. So what, what was actually happening back there? Well, Think of it this way. I mean, we understand this concept. It was forgiveness on credit. Right? It was forgiveness on credit. It's, you know, you, you go to, to Walmart after church today, and you uh, buy a pair of pants. Buy. Let's put that in quotes, right? You buy a pair of pants with a credit card. Well, so you hand them the credit card, you sign a slip, and, and you can walk out of the store with that garment in your bag and the security guard doesn't stop you for stealing. How can that be? Because how much have you paid for that? And the answer is nothing. You have paid nothing for that. So how can you take it out of the store legally, not be charged with stealing? And the answer is because you've, kind, you've signed a credit card slip that obligates you to a future payment. Now, if you don't make that future payment, you have stolen it, right? Don't forget that, by the way. <laughs> you have to make that payment, or, you're, or you are a thief. Okay, so here is God who is offering forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. Bring a lamb, bring, 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 a, bring a goat, bring, bring a bull, uh, bring, bring an animal to sacrifice, bring it to the temple, bring it to the priest. He'll offer that as a sacrifice for your sins, and you are forgiven, He's been doing this for hundreds of years, and when none of those things actually did produce forgiveness. So what God was doing every single time that he pronounced forgiveness was, it's like handing the pants to you and saying, they're yours, and you walk out the door. He, he hands forgiveness to them. It's yours, but based on what? An obligation he has undertaken. He signs the credit card slip Every time. It's on his credit card. Every time. Obligating himself to a future payment. Which has to be made. Or 
He's in default on all of these payment, all of these, this forgiveness that he has made. By the way, look later sometime at Romans chapter 3. This is the point of Romans 3, 21 to 26. God demonstrates his righteousness at the present time. He has passed over sins previously committed to demonstrate his righteousness now through the death of Christ. You see it? If he is, so, the, so that he can be, verse 26, so that he can be both just and the justifier of the one who has has put faith in Christ. He has been justifying for many centuries, but he has, has he been just in doing so? Not until now when the payment is made in Christ. So indeed, we have redemption in his blood that cannot be secured anyplace else. There is no other savior there's no other sacrifice that can actually atone for sin other than the sacrifice of Christ. This is why he had to come. He had to be the God-man in order to take our place but offer a sacrifice of infinite value. Man to take our place, God, so that his offering was of infinite value. So, the pay <coughs> excuse me, so that the payment he makes actually does pay fully for our sins. I remember one time in those evening theology chats with my two girls, uh, one, one of them said to me one night, we were talking about the atonement. That's where we were in, the, you know, in, in our uh, run-through th theology over 10 years. Uh, we were uh, on the atonement, and, and my Daughter Rachel said to me at the beginning of our time, she said, Daddy, I've been thinking about what we've been talking about, and I, I'm, I, I'm curious about something. And I said, what's that? She said, I'm curious why God actually had to send his son to be the Savior, because I think he could have done it a different way. I said, really? What, what do you think? She said, well, I think what he could have done was just create a, another Adam, a second Adam from the dust of the ground, and worked in him so that he would never sin, and so that, that sinless second Adam could have been the one who then died on the cross, took our sin and died in our place. And he could have been our savior and he wouldn't have had to send his son. Why didn't he do that? I said, Rachel, that's a great question. It really is. It's a great question. Now listen, this is the answer. That if God had done that, he had, he had made it, because you're right, he could have done that. He could have made a, a second Adam from the dust of the ground, just like he did the first one. He could have worked in him so that he was sinless. Could, could have put him on the cross and, 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 and uh, uh, imputed our sin to him. But here's the problem now. That this hypothetical second Adam, if he is just like us, a human being, but no more than that, no more than that, he's just a man, then that means that when he pays for our sin, he would pay for our sin the very same way. Remember, he's just like us, no more. Man, human, just like we are. He would pay for our sin in the very same way we would pay for it ourselves if we pay for it ourselves. Right? So here's the question. How do we pay for our own sin if we pay for it ourselves? What's the biblical answer to this? We pay forever. The reason hell is eternal is because that's how serious our offense is before our holy creator God. That we deserve, we 
deserve everlasting condemnation. The doctrine of purgatory in the Roman Catholic Church is a horrible um, falsity and, and, and deceptive teaching because you hear, here, here's, here's what's wrong with it at root. Not, not only the, the Bible doesn't teach that there is a place of purgatory. It doesn't teach that. But here's the main problem with it is that he gives the idea, given enough time, you can pay it off, right? You can be purged, purgatory. You can be purged of your sin, given enough time. It is false, all of eternity, we will never, those who are outside of Christ, oh my goodness, it is so sobering to realize this. All who are outside of Christ, for all of eternity, will never be able to pay off their sin, and so they suffer everlasting condemnation away from the presence of the Lord, and it cannot be reversed. Here's the difference with Christ. He wasn't just a second Adam, he was. He was another human. He was sinless. He did bear our sin. But when he offered that sacrifice, he offered it as the God-man. So that when he offered himself, he, he himself, deity and humanity together is of infinite value. So he pays in an instant what we cannot pay for in eternity. He is the only redeemer the only one who can bring to us forgiveness of sins. So let me just pause for a moment and encourage any of you sitting here right now who have not trusted in Christ. Do you realize what you face outside of Christ? You face everlasting separation from God. Now what does that mean? Well, just think of it. God is light, goodness, joy, beauty, everything that your soul says, oh, that's good, is in God. And none of it is anywhere else than in Him. So separation from Him for eternity, experiencing the judgment of God for your sin forever. But now, right now, you can bow before God and accept the gift of salvation through his son that he has purchased for you. He has brought about redemption, the forgiveness of your sins that you can accept by faith. For those of us who are his, oh my goodness, just, just give praise to God for the, for the gift of his son who alone can redeem us. So, indeed, the work of the Son, the glorious accomplishment of salvation is through the blood of the Son that redeems us, that brings us forgiveness of sin, that we might be made right with God and be with Him forever. It's the basis of that elect to be, chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. That comes through the work of Christ that uh, we, we are forgiven and made new in Him. All right, that brings us now to the, the Spirit. We've seen the work of the Father in designing salvation, the work of the Son in accomplishing salvation. Now we see the application, the gracious, gracious application of salvation is through the Spirit. And again, we saw this in verse 3 just briefly, that the Spirit is the one who brings to us personally, subjectively, 
all that is designed by the, by the Father, accomplished by the Son, comes to us by the Spirit. But he comes back to the Spirit again in verses 13 and 14. So let me read again those verses, verses 13 and 14, where we see the Spirit. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So here in verses 13 and 14, he highlights two things in particular that the Spirit does. Again, as with our discussion on verse 7, there's much more that could be said from the Bible broadly. But here in verses 13 and 14, he focuses on two things in particular. Notice the first one, verse 13, that in Christ, after you listen to the message of the truth, the gospel, when you believed, here's what happened to you. The very moment you believe in Christ... Here's what happens. You are sealed into Christ. You are in Christ, sealed there by the Spirit, uh, uh, who, who is the Holy Spirit of promise. So the, the Holy Spirit of promise, the one God promised to bring to us, the Spirit, the first thing he does is he puts us into Christ. So you know the theology that you read, for example, in Romans 6. Uh, sh shall we continue to sin that grace might increase? Oh no, God forbid, don't you know that you have died and been raised with Christ. You are in Christ who died for your sins. You are in Christ raised to newness of life. So our position in Christ uh, is one in which the Spirit places us so that we are there forever. It's a very strong evidence, by the way, of what we sometimes call eternal security. The security of the believer to know that once you're truly saved, nothing can change that. Because how are you going to overpower the omnipotent Holy Spirit who puts you into Christ? This cannot, cannot happen. So indeed, we cannot, nobody else can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. But here it is because the Spirit seals us into Christ, so we are His forever. But then verse 14 there's another image given here of the Spirit. The Spirit not only seals in Christ, but the Spirit Himself is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. He's the pledge of our inheritance. So it is as if the Father says, I give you this token, this promise, this oath by which I guarantee you will receive all of the riches of Christ. That's what the inheritance is here. He mentions it three times in Ephesians 1. It's a big deal. It's, it's all that Christ has won for us in his death and resurrection uh, that, that, that he has uh, accomplished for us is the inheritance in Christ. It is all yours, he says. And how, how do we know it's ours? I give you the Spirit as my pledge, my token, my promise that you'll receive it. I mean, the closest thing we have in our culture to this is the giving of an engagement ring uh, from a young man to a young woman promising that he will be hers, give himself to her, and, and so on. Now, the problem, of course, with, with those human arrangements is we're sinners. Uh, we can break our word. Uh, we, we, we can go back on what we've said. But God never goes back on his promise. Do you know that? He is faithful. 
He is the original promise keeper. You remember the promise, promise keeper movement some years back that really mobilized a lot of men? Promise keepers, you know, so be faithful to your covenant promise in marriage and so on. God is the ultimate, the original, the perfect promise keeper. He never goes back on his word. He always does what he says. And here he pledges to us, promises to us, that we will receive the fullness of the riches of Christ. And he gives us the Spirit as his token, pledge, that we will be his forever and receive all of the riches of Christ. So indeed, the Spirit is the one then that God, as it were, employs to bring about in us the fullness of salvation that has been accomplished by the Son. Designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son, and applied in our lives by the work of the Spirit. All right, finally, some points of application as we move to close the sermon this morning. First of all, marvel at the beauty of the triune God and of the salvation that He has accomplished. I just think when you see that the God who saved us is Father, Son, and Spirit, and each of them participating in their own important and unique ways, together bringing about this saving work. There's a richness, a beauty, a texture to what it means that God saved us from our sins that we don't see if you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity correctly. I mean, it's just glorious. It's absolutely stunning when you look at it through Trinitarian lenses. So marvel at the beauty of the triune God in the salvation that he has done for us. Secondly, consider the work of the Trinitarian persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison. One in which there is a unity of work without sameness and a diversity of roles without discord. Now, I, th I think of this. This is a musical metaphor that's one of the most beautiful metaphors, I think, to convey uh, what you see in the Trinity. Uh, you see in the Trinity a unis, uh, I'm sorry, a unity, unity that is not unison. What, what is it when we sing unison? We all sing the same line of notes, right? Which is normally what we do in congregational singing, is we all sing the, the same line of notes, right? So, and, and there's, a, there's a unity to that. There's a beautiful unity in unison. But this is a unity that is not unison, but it is also a distinction that is not discord. Discord. You want me to give you an example of discord? Three three-year-olds sitting at the same piano bench. That's discord. Big time. Yeah, okay. So, so you have a unity that is not unison, a distinction that is not discord. What is that? Harmony. Harmony. Have you ever heard a trio... I'll use a trio because of, you know, okay, anyway, yeah. uh, so have you, have you ever, ever heard a trio that begins singing in unison and then halfway through the first verse that they're singing, they break into parts and you go, oh, wow. You know, this richness, this texture. And so indeed, this is what you see in the Trinity is this unity that is not unison, distinction that is not discord, where all of the parts are blending in ways that support each other that enhance the beauty of the other lines of notes that are being sung. I, I, you know, just to, to push the metaphor a step further, I think who wrote the composition that the Trinitarian persons sing is the father. He's the composer. And he gives to his son the melody line. 
So the son is the lead singer, as it were, by the design of the father, supported by the spirit, is the way you see this in the Trinity. Now, application of that, think of how that um, can be expressed, should be expressed in our homes and in our churches, where we value distinction, different gifts, different abilities, different preferences, you know, diff- different tastes, you know, so, so, so we don't make clones of each other. You know, I, I have seen what that looks like, making clones of each other, uh, a, where the no, no distinction is valued, it's, it's unity as unison. Uh, I, I travel uh, to different places in the world to, to, te- uh, to train pastors, and one place I've been to several times is Romania. Bucharest, Romania. Anybody been there to Bucharest, Romania? It, it used to be called the Paris of Eastern Europe because they had all this Parisian architecture. And there's a little bit of it left. You can see it was absolutely stunning, beautiful. But what Ceausescu did, the communist dictator who was there until he was killed on Christmas Day, 1989, what he did was bulldozed hundreds of square blocks of this Parisian architecture and built in its place identical concrete buildings that had, had steel uh, uh, rims around the windows that have all rusted. So now on the sides of those buildings is all this rust running down all the way from the top to the, to the ground. I mean, they're just ugly, hideous. So this is communism really does like uniformity, right? In which there's no distinction allowed. Everybody lockstep, just the same. That is not God. God loves diversity. Goodness, snowflakes, genes, genetic difference. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? So distinctions are important. Different gifts. We're not all ears. We're not all eyes. We're not all hands. Okay, distinctions. And yet, distinctions that are not discord. So they work together toward one unified purpose, to build one another up in Christ, to encourage one another, not to show we're better than anybody else, not not to put ourselves up and other people down, not to show off what we've got, but to build one another up in Christ. This is the purpose. The unity of the body is not in its various giftings. There's diversity there. The unity of the Bible is how those gifts are used so that we all are brought to closer relationship with Christ and conform more to his likeness. Same thing in a family. I mean, goodness, the family that catches this vision can celebrate the quirkiness of your kids, right? You all know what I mean by that. You know, they're just so different from each other. And, and, and you, don't, you don't have to just kind of you know, make them follow one mold. But you also work as parents within that family to help them see a vision for what we are about as a family. We are a Christian family. We want to honor Christ in the way that we talk to one another, in, in, in the way that we deal with our friends, in how we respect our parents and obey them. We are a Christian family who want to exhibit Christ-like qualities. So yes, distinctions, but distinctions in which they are corralled for unified purpose. This is what you see in the Trinity. Finally, last point. 
understand the intrinsic authority, submission, structure within the, the relations of the very Trinitarian persons themselves and embrace the relevance to human life made in God's image. Authority and submission in relationships of husbands and wives, of church leaders and church members and others as well. But it's just an amazing thing to realize that within the Trinity, the Son is the eternal Son of the Father. What does that mean? Well, he always acts as son. The father is the eternal father of the son. What does that mean? Well, he always acts as father. So indeed, the father commands, the son goes. The father designs, the son implements. The father sends, the son goes to accomplish what the father sends him to do. And so we see in the Trinity, the, the, the very authority submission structures that God then puts into place in human relationships, reflecting himself. Isn't that amazing? So here's a principle from this that I think is just stunning. It is as God-like to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority as it is God-like to exert wise and beneficial rightful authority. Let me say it again. It is as God-like to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority as it is God-like to exert wise and beneficial rightful authority. Isn't that amazing? Because it is in God. And so he creates us in his image, and part of what that means is a reflected authority submission structure in the home, in the church, and of course in, in many, many other places in life we see that. So relish authority and submission. Don't chafe at it as our culture does. Because after all, we're Christians and we want to follow by the Bible. We want to be like God and may, may we then embrace who he is. Well, my friends, we have a glorious God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amazing uh, display of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our salvation. And I pray all of us would have hearts that long to know Him more and want to, be, want to live lives that increasingly reflect Him and bring glory to His name. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for our time this morning <clears throat> to think through uh, this doctrine of the Trinity from Ephesians 1. What a privilege we've had. And we pray that You would enable us, Lord, to, to know You better uh, yes, indeed, to see the Trinitarian indicators of your self-revelation in the Bible and, and be able to, to then uh, worship you with greater fervor and follow you with greater faithfulness. Do this work in us, we pray in the name of Christ, our exalted and reigning Savior and Lord. Amen.